appreciate that. Well, good afternoon. Let me just give you a little bit of background of uh, where I come from, what I do. Um, I was just thinking about how long I've been at WATE, coming up on the 18th, so I guess just a few days from now will be my 21st anniversary at the TV station. And uh, 21 years, I never dreamed I'd be in Knoxville that long, but it's, uh, I've been blessed to be here and love the community. I come from the Midwest. Um, I was an Army brat, youngest of six kids. My father was uh, in the Army, and I was born in Oklahoma, and we quickly moved to Germany and then spent some time in Salina, Kansas, when my father was in Vietnam, and then went to Montana during my elementary school years, moved back to uh, Fort Riley, Kansas, um, Spent some time there, like junior high and high school and college, went to Kansas State University. My first degree that I earned was in sports journalism, and um, here I am doing weather, so go figure. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how God changes things? No, but uh, what happened there is I, I took my first job as a news reporter, an editor, and a photographer at a small station in Joplin, Missouri, and I had hoped to work into their sports department. Well, as it turned out, there was a vacancy in their weather department, and they asked me if I would just to read National Weather Service copy and get up and fill time because they didn't have another person they wanted to hire. Bottom line is they knew I would do it for cheap. As what that, now, that, now that I'm not freshly out of college and I can look back now, I can see where they just railroaded me is what happened. But I really enjoyed what I was doing, and I started wanting to move to a bigger market where you could make more money, and so um, I really couldn't find a full-time weather job, so I, I quit because everybody wanted a, quote, meteorologist at the time. And so I quit my job, went back to school, and this time at the University of Kansas. My first degree is at Kansas State in uh, journalism. My second degree, University of Kansas in atmospheric science. And I uh, worked part-time in Topeka, Kansas at the NBC affiliate for two and a half years. Got my atmospheric science degree, and I got a call literally out of the blue to come to Knoxville for an interview for a morning and weekend job at the ABC affiliate here. And I came down and... Uh, took the job, not right away, but I interviewed for the job, and when they called and offered me the job, I was like, yes! Um, was able to move down here and took the job and started uh, February 18th of 1990, doing mornings and weekends. And about a year and a half after that, I got promoted to the chief meteorologist position when um, my predecessor left and went to Cincinnati. Thought I'd be here three or four years and move on, and uh, here we are still. So, um, love the area, love the community. A little tricky to forecast at times, yes, but uh, it's kind of funny. We're going to be talking about the weather of the future and uh, the climate change and that sort of thing, and we've just gone through one of the snowiest and coldest winters we've had in a long time. But uh, we can't pinpoint exactly what's going on. There are, there are factors that influence the weather. So um, that's just kind of a little bit about myself. Uh, I love the area. I hope to stay around a few more years, and, uh, but we'll see what happens. When I was asked to read this book, I thought, okay, this is interesting. Because it's really, um, we've talked about global warming and greenhouse gases, and no doubt we've heard about that, and planets uh, changing, and time tends to even itself out with ice ages and dust bowls and that sort of thing. But it's interesting, this book, I started reading it, and the more I read it, I thought, wow, this is, this is really cool. Because I've, I know who Heidi Cullen is. Um, she worked at the Weather Channel. She's a known climatologist throughout the country and throughout the world. But um, when we forecast weather, um, we forecast weather based on local knowledge, but we also use computer models that give us an idea of what's going to happen into the future. And my philosophy with computer models is they're not the gospel, they're not always 100% accurate, but they give us an idea of what's going to happen into the future. Now, when the computer models tell us that, uh, a good example, a week ago, uh, two weeks ago, some of the local models for weather prediction were showing we could have 18 inches of snow last week. 
And then 24 hours later, that same computer model showed we'd have about eight inches of snow. And then about 24 hours later, it showed about four inches of snow. And by the time we got to the day of the 18-inch snow, we were forecasting a dust into a couple inches. So short-term computer models are interesting. They give you an idea. They're not the gospel. They are guidance. They give us an idea of what's going to happen into the future. We do a six-day forecast at Channel 6 just because of a marketing deal, and sometimes it's hard enough to forecast 24 and 48 hours out, let alone five and six days out. So I always tell people, when you look at the end of the six-day forecast, don't look at it and hold me to, if I get on there tonight and say, okay, next, what is today, what, Thursday, Wednesday? Okay, next Tuesday or Wednesday is going to be 62 degrees. You can't hold me to that, but you can look at it and say, okay, it's a trend. We're going to stay about the same. We're going to get colder. We'll get warmer. We'll get hotter. We'll get wetter. We'll get drier. Whatever. It's a trend. Now, the 24- and 48-hour forecasts are about 93% accurate. So if you ever see a person, a weather person, say they get it right all the time, they're lying, they're lying, they're lying. <laughs> we'll never get right all the time, okay? So just keep in mind when we talk about computer models. Um, this book, Weather of the Future, no doubt um, you've heard terms of global warming, climate change. You've no doubt seen movies, documentaries. Um, and everybody has their own opinion. Some people don't believe in global warming. Some people believe in it. Some people think now we've changed to climate change because global warming was wrong, so now we're calling it climate change. But everybody has opinions, and it's interesting to watch, look at this book. I want to show you just something neat about this book. The, very, the first 60 pages, just that much right there, just talks about what's going on, just the basics of global warming. The rest of this is... Heidi's idea of what could happen into the future. And this is mostly what I'm going to focus on, okay? I, I was uh, <clears throat> telling the folks in the back, telling Emily, that I was working last week on a uh, book report with my son. He, he had to do a book report on an African slave for a, a Black Awareness Week. Uh, an African slave who was born in Africa. He was the prince of a king, sold into slavery, came over to the United States, was very successful, became a tanner, opened his own tannery, and was one of the most wealthiest African-Americans in, in the days of the slaves. And he had to draw a poster and do a book report. And I told Joshua, I said, buddy, you know what? I haven't done a book report in like 30 years. And he looked at me and he goes, really? And I said, yeah, and I've got to give a book report next week. And he goes, really? Do you get to draw posters and get up? And <laughs> I said, no, it's not quite like that. So, interesting. And then I thought, I, I went through the book. I finished it about uh, four or five days ago, and I thought I'd sit down on my computer, computer and type up what I wanted to, to, to share with you all. And then I started typing on the computer, and I said, there's no way. I'm not going to type all this stuff I've highlighted. So what I decided to do, if you don't mind, I'm going to go through and just share the highlighted points that I have in the book. Um, and I, this is one of those books that's got so much information in it that I could read it three or four times and, and get something different out of it every time. So basically, let me begin by um, just, just sharing some thoughts that, that Heidi has put in here. And um, at the end, if you, if you want to share some thoughts, uh, be glad to. Some of this stuff is just mind-boggling. Some of it makes sense. But uh, Mark Twain one day said, uh, years ago, he said, you know, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. Well, guess what? We're going to have to start doing something about it. Otherwise, it could get out of hand in the future, and that's coming to the basis of what this book says. Interesting quote here. Global warming in a recent Pew Research Center poll said, according to the Pew study, collective list of concerns goes like this. What are you concerned about as American? 
Number one, the economy, then jobs, then terrorism, then Social Security, then education, energy, Medicare, health care, deficit reduction, health insurance, helping the poor, crime, moral decline, the military, tax cuts, environment, immigration, lobbyists, truth, trade policy, and guess what? Global warming at the bottom of all that. So it's not at the high list, uh, top of everybody's list of concerns, but it's still, it is still there. Um, one of the things that, that Heidi uh, talks about in the book, she, she talks about how the global warming is like the, the stock market. You know, sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down, sometimes it makes headlines, sometimes it goes away. But when the stock market starts increasing, it makes the news. And when the stock market falls, it makes news. But everywhere in between, it just isn't big news. So trying to keep it on the forefront is the idea of her thoughts and processes here. Okay, the difference between weather and climate. Weather makes our climate. Have you ever thought about it that way? Everyday weather creates our climate. How do we get our averages, our high and lows? Well, the average this time of year is 52 on the high side. It's 32 on the low side. We average about 9.9 .9 inches of snow a year in Knoxville. So far this winter, we've had 12.5 inches of snow. Not all at once. It tends to come in little spurts here and there. But how do we come up with those? Through a series, years and years of data is collected, and then we use that information to come up with our averages and that sort of thing. So the weather that we have creates the climate that we have here in East Tennessee, in addition to our location on the globe and that sort of thing. Uh, Heidi says, we humans see ourselves as highly adaptable creatures. Indeed, whether or not we can endure the coming climate change hinges on our way to adapt, our ability to adapt. How are we going to adapt? And wait till you hear what they're doing. She thinks they're going to be doing in New York City in 2050. It's going to be very interesting. Okay? A lot of people are surprised to learn that scientists have been working on the problem of global warming for well over 100 years. I didn't realize that. The key difference in the beginning, though, was that the scientists weren't studying humanity's role in the process, just looking at natural variability. But then when you throw us into the equation, then we tend to mess things up. Okay? We tend to pollute things. Do we have a thermostat on the, United, or on the globe? Do we have a way to regulate? You regulate your thermostat at the house, or you keep it set at a certain temperature you like to keep. You think about, uh, do we have a built-in uh, thermostat for the globe? We've got water vapor. We've got transportation of winds. We've got the oceans. We've got the ice caps. We've got the uh, warmest bath water in a tropical convergence zone. So in a way, we do have thermostats built in. But the problem is that we're throwing a lot of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere in various ways through burning of fossil fuels from uh, greenhouse gases. And by the way, let me, let me put a little caveat in here. This time of year, I am so used to speaking to kindergartners, first graders, second, third, fourth, and fifth graders because I do a lot of weather presentations. For instance, yesterday I was in Blount County speaking to kindergartners and first graders, and tomorrow I'm over in... Uh, Shellhowie Intermediate School, talking with third graders, and so I'm so used to talking elementary. If I talk to you like you're elementary, I do apologize. So that's kind of where we're going from. But carbon dioxide has the ability to um, come, it, it comes in rain, it's, it's built into the, the ground, it's, it's released through many different fossil fuels. But if we don't cut back on some of these emissions, then we're going to have a problem possibly that the atmosphere is going to continue to heat. And if the ocean continues to heat as well, then we could have melting of glaciers and rising of water tables. And that's going to be one of the things that we're going to talk about here in just a second. So is the atmosphere and the earth going to be able to continue to regulate itself as it has in the past through ice ages and dust bowls and heat waves and blizzards and that sort of thing? It's been one of the most active winters we've seen in many, many years across the United States. And some people will say that's because of the Arctic Oscillation, or some people will say it's because it's El Nino or La Nina or global warming or climate change. 
we really can't pinpoint it right now, but we will be able to, going through research, look back and, and uh, see, see exactly how all this works together. Here, here's, here's what I was talking about, the climate models and the weather models. Climate models and weather models are often one and the same, but while climate models simulate actual weather, their results are analyzed differently from weather models. Climate prediction is not nearly as dependent on initial, initial conditions for weather predictions. In other words, if you don't have good data to put into your climate model or your weather prediction model right at the very beginning, if you put bad data in there, you're going to get a bad forecast. But if you have good data to put in there and accurate data to start a forecast, then it's more likely that that forecast is going to be accurate. Of course, when we're talking about weather prediction models, it's short-term climate prediction models or long-term. There are two types of climate model runs to test the impact of global warming on the climate system. One are transient runs and equilibrium runs. There's two different types, transient and equilibrium. In a transient run, greenhouse gases are slowly added to the climate system so we can see how it impacts our climate. In an equilibrium run, the atmosphere carbon dioxide levels instantly doubled so we can get an idea, a quicker analysis of what's going to happen into the future. So uh, one model, transient, gradually adds carbon dioxide to it to see how it's going to act in the future. The other one would just double it right away because that is a possibility in the future if we don't watch out what's going on. So we'd watch for results from some of those climate uh, models. All right. Accounting for natural factors, um, what, are we, what would be some natural factors into the atmosphere? Obviously, uh, volcano eruptions could be some of those things. Sometimes people talk about when carbon is transported through rain, we've got carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but when it rains, it's transported to the ground and then sinks into the earth. A lot of our carbon cycle is locked up in landforms and ice and that sort of thing. So what's going to happen when that starts melting? Climate models are not only important for showing us what could happen, but are also a valuable tool for showing how much of it is our fault. How much is it our fault? How much are we as human beings contributing to the carbon dioxide increase and the greenhouse gases increase. And that's why it's so important to find clean energy as so many is such a hot topic right now. Climate models can accurately estimate how much warming these natural factors produce, but they do not have the strength to generate the temperature increase we're seeing. If climate models can show us that temperature is rising and that it's our fault, what are we going to do about it? The short answer is that it already has. We've already seen some changes, and we're also starting to see some investment in clean energy, which is a hot, hot topic. I guess I shouldn't say hot, hot topic. That's not very good to use right here. But anyway, you know what I'm saying. Okay, so Heidi just gives a little bit of background about the basics of global warming. But the interesting part about this whole book, and what I want to do with this book is go back 20 years from now, pull it off my shelf, and see the forecast in here and see how accurate it is. So she takes uh, seven different geographic areas around the, the world. The first place we're going to talk about is the African Sahel. Fascinating what's going on over there. Human influence that goes beyond the behavior of local population, global warming has already warmed up ocean surface temperature by about a degree Fahrenheit during the past century. And given the already established relationship between ocean temperatures and droughts in the Sahel Desert, this warming trend will almost certainly have a negative impact on the amount of future precipitation there. So what are they doing? The model that Heidi's talking about here dries the desert in response to uniform heating, and that's why we dry so strongly into the future. It's a global warming that's that, uh, a signal that dominates the headlines. We're still trying to understand, but in the meantime, model simulations show 
that is going to continue to very warm in the desert. Okay? It is expected that the people of the Sahel region will be the most vulnerable, experiencing up to 160 days per year in the 21st century with significant chance of heat stroke on 160 days out of the year. Regarding rainfall, timing of the rainfall season rather than the average amount of rainfall is most important. When will it fall? Rainy season in the Sahel is projected to start later and become shorter. So what does that mean? More drought. Okay? Not good news. Those pockets of re there are some pockets of resilience, and it's really interesting how they explain this here. Um, the exact cause, there's some greening taking place in the, in the desert as well. And this explained because um, there used to be some cutting of the trees. Needless to say, the exact cause of the greening is not perfectly resolved, but some people think that they went to the tradition of land clearing in the desert areas. And what happened in the 1930s is the French colonial government pushed Nigerian farmers to grow crops to export. And so they cleared the land, they cleared the trees. But as it turned out, as you clear the trees, when the sand blows, I don't know if you've ever been in a sandstorm, but it's just like cuts. It, it cuts, doesn't really cut your skin, but it's strong enough to cut the tender vegetation and the crops. And so they had problems growing crops out there after they cleared the land. But as it turned out, um, 2007, somewhere between one quarter and half of Niger's farmers were involved in re-greening efforts. Regreening, as you might expect, is growing vegetation again. And at least 4.5 million people had seen the quality of their lives improve significantly in this area. And the reason is, is because they think there were a lot of roots still in the, in the soil, and they finally got some moisture in there, and moisture on roots that aren't dead, then they started getting some greening going on. Three factors, according to Heidi, play into this regreening. First, despite the deforestation that took place in the 1970s, there was still that root stock that I mentioned is still in the ground. Second factor is livestock. This is nice while you're eating lunch. Livestock would get rid of their, what they need to get rid of, but it would also have seeds in it, okay? And so that would repopulate and replenish the ground as moisture came along because there's seed memory in the soil. And then, uh, then trees would start growing and they would have some greening going on. And we all know that greening, having more trees, is actually gonna help reduce the amount of global warming that takes place as long as we don't continue to clear cut land. So um, that's some good news for the folks in Niger. Now, here's, here's a forecast. Uh, let's see, for what does she say for these? Okay, we're going to jump to March 2030. By 2030, piracy had become an epidemic in the order of HIV and AIDS. The piracy industry popped up after Somalia's central government collapsed in 1991. And so the pirates came in, and they took care of taking all the food from the people, and they took care of taking all the fishery uh, business and taking over the fishery business. So there was obviously some famine and some hunger going on in Africa because of the piracy that took place. In, this is in 2030. By 2050, after years of conflict, drought, and food shortages, Africa was finally able to capitalize on something that it had abundance of. What do you think that is? What would you have abundance of in the desert? Sand and what else? Sunshine. And you know what happened? This is her forecast that in 2050, some of the rich companies in Germany are going to do this. They're going to come up and they're going to set up uh, renewable energy, solar energy panels, and take over some of this land, use that energy in return for clean, fresh water for the folks that live out there in the desert. So her North African government sold their desert in return for water. Let us use the desert to generate power so the folks in the German area, businesses, you can use the energy to desalinate the seawater and provide fresh water for the folks in Africa.
So it's not all bad. I mean, you know, you think of global warming and climate change, and it's going to be all bad, but isn't that a cool idea to use solar energy? The people that can afford to put the, the uh, product in there, the, uh, f the infrastructure in there to make the uh, solar energy, and in turn, they would pay back the folks that live in the desert with desalinated water. So that's our forecast for 2050 for that part of the African desert. All right, this one kind of broke my heart. The Great Barrier Reef in, in Australia. Anybody ever been to Australia to see the Great Barrier Reef? No? I've seen it. It became really popular because of Nemo. And I mean, kids know where the Great Barrier Reef is just because of that movie itself. This is the second area that she talked about. Uh, it extends 1,200 miles along the northeast coast of Australia, about 70 million football fields. 70 million football fields half the size of the state of Texas, and that's the area of the Great Barrier Reef. Corals have existed in the Great Barrier Reef for more than 25 million years. Um, today, that big layer cake helps to feed hundreds of thousands of Australians because visitors, tourism, is a $6.9 billion industry every year just to come see the Great Barrier Reef. So what happens if the Great Barrier Reef starts to decay and starts to have problems? Well. That happens. Let's see what she says. It's like this. Imagine you fall in love with the most beautiful, amazing person. This is one of the scientists Heidi works in. I love this quote. Imagine you fall in love with the most beautiful, amazing person, and then that person comes down with cancer. It's an incredibly sad thing. I fell in love with the reefs, not their disease, but it's the disease, the rising level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that has captured the attention of the entire generation of marine scientists who are intent on saving the reefs. Carbon dioxide and also the warming of the ocean waters is causing problems for the Great Barrier Reef. Um, it's not to say everything was perfect with corals. Impact of global warming um, is evident, though. Coral reefs were already showing signs of stress due to local scale impacts such as agricultural runoff and pesticides that are put in the agricultural system and run off into the ocean, destructive overfishing practices, bottom trawling from the fishermen, and uh, dynamiting the decline of water quality due to pollution. Basically, the reefs were in the worst shape the closer they are to the people. The farther out you go, the better they look. So once again, our greediness and our need to get in there and uh, trawl and take fish and not take care of what we've been given here on the planet Earth is interesting that they said the closer the reefs are to people, the worse they are, and the farther away, the better they are. Global warming affects corals in two ways. The first is temperature, the ocean's warming up, as I mentioned. Second, ocean chemistry, the oceans are becoming more acidic. And as the oceans become more acidic, then that also has an impact on the coral reefs as well. A reef is the result of colonies of corals building their skeletons like a bricklayer laying bricks steadily over thousands of years. But once you start to mess with the mortar, then the brick isn't as solid as it used to be. It's true that coral reefs like warmth. Ideally, they are adapted to water temperatures ranging from 65 to 90 Fahrenheit, but corals don't like spikes in temperatures. And here comes the problem. It's called coral bleaching. It's a term scientists use to describe the loss of all or some algae and pigment of the quarter coral, mainly because of the rising temperature. Um, Baseline for bleaching can happen ranges from temperatures from 79 in the southern end to 86 on the northern end. Water temperature in the Great Barrier Reef has increased about uh, 0.7 degrees Fahrenheit since 1850, and the central and southern portions of the Great Barrier Reef have warmed more than 1.2 degrees Fahrenheit. The mass bleaching event that occurred in 1998 represents a turning point, according to many experts. They say that mass coral bleaching events have increased in extent and severity worldwide over the last decade. 
On March 16, 2009, the Australian government reported a weather triple whammy that led to another round of coral bleaching, stifling heat in December, floods in January and February, and winds from the tropical cyclone Hamish arrived one after the other. Ocean temperatures across most of the reef rose between 3.6 and 5.4 degrees above the December average, initiating that coral bleaching. So what's going to happen in the future with the Great Barrier Reef? Well, hopefully it's going to be saved. There are some research projects that say um, they're using satellite data, uh, uh, mapping with NASA. This is a worldwide effort, but there's even talk of um, taking some of the coral and freezing it and saving it until and hopefully try to regrow it in the future in climates that can support it better than what's going on in the Great Barrier Reef right now. So let's see what our forecast says. For 2017, this is what Heidi says. In 2017, El Nino set off a worldwide coral bleaching event affecting hundreds of thousands of miles of reefs simultaneously. The El Nino came when ocean temperatures were already warmer than average and caused severe extreme bleaching. Um, El Nino is the warming of the waters along the equatorial Pacific, and La Nina is the cooling of it. And this is a La Nina year, and we were supposed to have a milder winter here in East Tennessee. I think it's still mild, but it just took about two months of the winter season to get here. Finally, it got here this past week. Um, tourism industry in the Great Barrier Reef alone, reef damage related to bleaching had caused losses to the tourism industry. I talk for a living. The tourism industry on order of $250 million because of the bleaching. People wouldn't pay money to go see that. And think, um, human impact might fare better. They were, uh, the bleaching event caused extensive mortality to nearly every coral reef region in the world. No man is an island and no reef is safe from the long arm of climate change. Up to the ninth, December 2019. Um, residents of Australia woke to the first morning in December of 2019 to face yet another sustained warning of catastrophic fire danger. Catastrophic had been put in place by the Australian Bureau of Meteorology in 2009 after the horrific wildfires. So not only do they have to worry about what's going on in the ocean, they've got wildfires going on there. In October, an ongoing drought kicked up a thick wall of red dust from Sydney, less than two blocks. You couldn't even see the Sydney Opera House. And in November, intense heat pushed the average temperatures for the month into numbers never seen before. Towns throughout Victoria and Southeast Australia were running two to four degrees above the previous record. And that's in 2019. In 2025, um, corals from tropical oceans were being, hey, this is what I was talking about. I got ahead of myself. Corals in, uh, from tropical oceans were being placed in deep freeze at the Smithsonian to preserve them for posterity as they face destruction from rising greenhouse gas levels. The coral cryobank, is what she calls it, would ultimately house hundreds of samples from each such species. The funding came from new research suggesting that most coral reefs would be largely dead by 2040 if something wasn't done about it. There are 1,800 known tropical corals and another 3,350 cold water species. This is Smithsonian, would house about 1,000 samples of each coral in a large room in a sub-basement of the museum in Washington, D.C. This facility was named the Morgue of the Sea. Okay. All right, now let's move to the Central Valley of California. We've well, we heard jokes that California is going to fall into the ocean anyway. Folks in California have major problems with 
water if, if we have global warming problems, and here's why. Sacramento, San, San Joaquin Delta, the Sacramento and San Joaquin rivers converge in canals, levees, stream beds, marshes, with an area that spans 24 miles east to west and 48 miles north to south. The delta is the hub of the California water supply. So what happens if we get global warming in this delta here, causes sea levels to rise, and then you have salinity, you get salt water coming into the freshwater supply. You're going to have major problems in California. Scientists say the canals and levees have become increasingly vulnerable to a catastrophic failure, whether it arrives abruptly in the form of a, what would you think in California would cause levees and earthquake? That's right. They had a major earthquake in there. It arrives abruptly in the form of an earthquake or slowly due to the result of rising sea levels. In any event, scientists are nearly unanimous. The delta is unsustainable. And that's where the majority of the fresh water comes from. Take your pick. Earthquakes, flood, rising sea levels, subsidence, urbanization, all contribute to the increasing likelihood of multiple levee failures in California. Um, scientists study the delta. They'll tell you that it is likely to change significant and abruptly within the next generation. A sudden catastrophic change would be very hard landing indeed for those depending on the delta. Earthquake and a flood are the two most likely scenarios, as we talked about. And uh, when, when asked if the, it was fair to say that a catastrophic levee failure of some kind was guaranteed by the end of the century, if nothing was done, the scientist said, well, you can give it about 100% probability, but I would put it at 99% that something is going to happen. Hmm. How about that? Anything we can do about it? Well, Part of the problem that they're trying to reinforce some of the levees and the ducks, uh, the dikes around the area. Um, the, the problem they're going to have now is that um, all the snow that comes from the Sierra Nevada mountains is not staying up there long enough. It's all melting quick, rapidly, more rapidly than it's used to, so it's transferring that water down into the freshwater system. And if they get flood, if they get heavy rains, or they get an earthquake, and it breaks some of those levees or those dikes, then that water is going to mix with seawater, and they're going to have major problems. So that's, that's what they're saying. Um, let's see, where was her forecast? Let's get to her forecast. In 2017, winters are becoming increasingly tepid. Spring became earlier and earlier. Summer seemed to last forever, whereas the Sierra snowpack, just like we were talking about, was gone by June. None of this came as much a surprise. It has always been fairly easy for climate models to forecast temperature. Interesting. 2027, the dream of what was California had begun to unravel. Temperatures crossed the Golden State, which had been rising since 1950s, started to spike, and in 2027 saw new record high temperatures being set almost every day, as one local meteorologist put it, in 2017. So we're talking, what, 15 years from now? No, not 2017. That was 2027. So we're talking about 15 years from now. 2040, the seasons had become almost unrecognizable. The heat hung on the summer extended into a long, mind-numbing, brutal test of patience. Rainfall had become erratic. Cool patch of tropical Pacific Ocean temperatures suggested that we were locked into something like a prolonged but sketchy La Nina event for the U.S. Southwest. La Nina is synonymous with drought. Water was on everyone's mind. So, going to have problems in California. What about the Arctic? We've all heard about the Arctic. Interesting. Can you imagine getting in a fight with Canada over the Northwest Passage, which is supposed to be frozen all the time? That would be interesting. Some of the natives up in, in the Arctic, um, I'll share just a few of their comments. It's, it's interesting to see what they say about what's happening to their land. 
This is one of the natives up in the Arctic. When I was younger, I remember that the ice freezes at the end of September or the first week of October. Now it freezes in late October or the first week of November. This is another one. Long ago, the cold gradually set in and the ice gets thicker. Now there are long spells of strong winds and the ocean can't freeze up. Strong winds meaning probably warmer winds. Here's another quote. It's more dangerous for younger generation because they don't know the conditions, what to avoid and what not to avoid. Another one, I think we have lost the skills so much. I mean, that would have been dangerous for a man 50 years ago is now dangerous because we have lost so many skills, the skills of how to survive on the sea ice and how to hunt and how to fish because it's all changing for the younger generation. We go to areas where we wouldn't normally go because we are assured we will know where we are. We also take more chances because we're not exactly sure what the ice is doing. The dog teams know the thin ice and the thicker ice, so people know they can walk through thin ice. Snowmobile doesn't say, alert, this is thin ice. So it's more dangerous by snowmobile than by dog team. The dogs can tell when it's thin ice, the snowmobiles can't. If you don't know the traditional knowledge, you won't last very long. You'll freeze to death if you don't know how to survive. And these are all from natives that live up in the Arctic. The weather nowadays is unpredictable. You can check the five-day forecast, but that doesn't mean there's weather is going to get. That's the weather you're going to get. See, they know it up there in the Arctic, too. <laughs> I guess I shouldn't have read that one, huh? Okay, the second part of the Arctic, Greenland. This is fascinating to me. I was, this, this is probably one of the most interesting parts that I read. In a changing climate, it helps speed the process up. Then many Greenlanders say to bring it on. For people of Greenland, 90% of whom are indigenous, the, uh, the question of how quickly Greenland's ice will melt is not merely an abstraction. It represents freedom. Get where this is going. However, there's another catch. If the, model, if, if the Greenland ice sheet, the GIS, melted, exposing all the riches beneath it, it would also raise the sea level worldwide by 23 feet. That's huge. But listen to what, this is mind-boggling. That's why the loss of the Greenland ice sheet represents one of the worst-case scenarios with regard for global warming. But the people that live up there, it's a good deal because guess what they're going to get to do? They're going to get rich. They're going to get rich off this. Arctic sea, okay, forecast for 20, this book was written three years ago. So here's her 2011 forecast. See if this is right. Arctic ice was now declining at a rate of almost 12% per decade. And to make matters worse, less than 20% of the ice cover was more than two years old, the lowest amount ever recorded since satellite measurements were taken. In May 2022, as the sea ice continued to melt, the disputes between Canada and the United States over control of the Northwest Passage increased. Canada maintained that the passage lay inside its territorial waters, allowing it to exercise control over all ship traffic and the passage would be classified as international sea lane outside of one nation's jurisdiction. Despite the controversy, the Canadian government staked its claim to the Arctic waters. It constructed new naval bases in the area and ordered a new fleet of Arctic patrol boats. You would have never thought that happened, and this is supposed to be all ice. The retreating sea ice also opened a potential for deep water drilling. Somebody's going to get rich because that ice, now you can get through it. And there's oil deposits and gas deposits as well. In 2022, North Sea was on average three degrees warmer than it had been 50 years before. The warmer uh, temperatures had chased away the plankton and that young cod eat in the spring. So just as fishermen were searching for cod, the cod were searching for plankton and the plankton were looking for cooler water. And so where did they go? They left the area. 
The fish and chip shops in England were buying their cod from trawlers sailing the coast of Ireland. The fishermen were trying to scrape by on shrimp, and the jellyfish had decided the North, North Sea felt just right for them. So notice how all these ocean creatures were changing, moving to cooler or warmer waters where they could survive. Across the lands of the Arctic, the formerly pale brown treeless landscape had begun to turn dark green because now you're not above the tree line. They're able to grow because it's warmed up enough. Um, let's see. Where is that one part that I thought was interesting? Okay, 20, overall the ground itself had become more and more unstable as permafrost thawed and gave way, roads buckled, sewer and water lines burst, home foundations sagged, and trees tipped over in random directions as they were drunk. The permafrost was turning into a soggy sponge. So that hard permafrost, it was melting, and everything that was built on top of it was falling apart. In 2040, when the climate scientists had collectively predicted the Arctic would fully be ice-free in summer, in 2040... Models were off by only eight years. By 2032, it had happened already. The trip from Yokohama to New York via the Northwest Passage was 2,200 miles shorter than going through the Suez Canal, because now you could go through the Arctic because the sea ice was gone. It would still be dangerous, but it was, it was still a possibility. And in 2050, it's tempting to say that places like Greenland and the Arctic had been living their version of the American dream, but the boom had begun to show signs of busting, or perhaps more accurately, the boom was melting. Infrastructure costs to combat crumbling roads and sagging buildings were out of control. Methane hydrates, essentially natural gas trapped in ice crystals, had become the next big thing in the Arctic. So what does that mean? Well, business is going to come up there and start destroying the environment. As temperatures continue to warm, methane hydrates, both in the Arctic permafrost and beneath the oceans at continental margins, destabilized. In other words, methane, a greenhouse gas with 23 times the heat-trapping capacity of carbon dioxide, began pouring into the Arctic because it's released under the ice shelf. Okay, you can imagine what's happened when, what would happen in Bangladesh. I know we're running short on time, but I wanted to share New York with you here in a second. Bangladesh, they already have major flooding problems. Sea level rises, they've even got more. The extinction of the Bengal tiger is probably going to happen. Uh, the extinction of many other wild animals is probably going to happen as well. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on Bangladesh. I don't mean to be disrespectful at all by any means. But we know it's going to flood because it's already at or below free... Uh, sea level. Oh, here's one for you. In early August, millions of Bangladeshians had been marooned or displaced by floodwaters. This is in 2026. The death toll currently stood at more than 5,000, but it was expected to rise. In India, by 2039, the groundwater situation worsened. Officials were forced to begin illegally withdrawing more water from the Indus River than they had been allotted. In response, Pakistan threatened to call in troops along the border. So we're going to have wars over water is what's going to happen, clean water. The increase in salinity altered soil quality and nutrient loads. Simply, the salt water was killing the trees as it came in. And in 2050 in Bangladesh, despite plenty of competition, South Asia remained the most food insecure place on the planet. Rice and wheat fields continue to spiral downward because of high temperatures and low water supply within almost 25% of the country underwater as a result of rising waters in Bangladesh. Okay, so we're going to have wars there. Now, New York, New York's an interesting story. Um, many of you know that uh, uh, New York, a lot of it is below, at or below sea level with the subways and the tunnels and that sort of thing. And um, 
And when I was reading this, I remember the first time I went to Europe, I was flying back, and we were landing at Kennedy Airport, and that airplane was coming down, and it looked like we were just going to get, I mean, it looked like we were going to land on the ocean, and all of a sudden, boom, we hit the runway. So two of the major airports in New York are right there out on the ocean, or right on the edge. looks like you're landing on water. Good thing about New York is they've got a plan. They're working on trying to uh, fix the infrastructure, uh, trying to get some pumps ready if they have flooding, trying to even possibly, well, I'll get to that in a second. The conclusion is simple. The more greenhouse gases we emit globally, the more problems New York will have locally, and that's going to happen worldwide. For New York, climate change means blackouts, and that's just pure and simple. They'll have blackouts in the big city. 1971 to 2000, New York City averaged about 14 days a year with temperatures over 90 degrees. A uh, 100-degree day in New York actually is a rarity, less than one day per year, and that's from up to 2000. By the end of the century, 100-degree days will no longer be a rarity in New York City. And if it's just New York City, it's not just New York City. Have you ever thought about New York City being hit by a hurricane? Hurricanes illustrate some of the most dramatic risks to New York's infrastructure, but there are plenty of everyday weather events that will become increasingly problematic, most notably the guts of New York, its sewer system, the New York City's drainage and wastewater system is extensive. It consists of about 6,600 miles of sewers, 130 catch basins, and almost 100 pumping stations. What's going to happen if it starts flooding? New York City has a goal to reduce New York City's greenhouse gas emissions by 30% by 2030. There are four principal strategies in do the mitigation plan is to avoid urban sprawl, generate clean power, make buildings more energy efficient, and create sustainable transportation. Because New York City's population is expected to grow from 8.3 million to 9.1 million by the year 2030. Okay, the average hurricane season has 11 named storms and six hurricanes, including two major hurricanes. The United States Landfalling Hurricane Probability Project puts the risk that New York would be hit by a major hurricane, that's category three or stronger, by 2050 at 90%. So New York has a, by 2050, there's a 90% chance that they're going to be hit by a Category 3 or stronger hurricane. So what's that going to do? Well, for most, the it would, uh, surge would be up to 25 feet at John F. Kennedy Airport, 21 feet at the Lincoln, Lincoln Tunnel, 24 feet at the Battery, and 16 feet at LaGuardia Airport. The U.S. Corps of Engineers estimated that nearly 30% of the south side of Manhattan would be flooded, be underwater. That kind of gives you an idea of what she's talking about, 30% of it. For the most part, people simply jumped ship and left the city. It ended up the largest peacetime evacuation since Hurricane Floyd when the first hurricane threatened, threatened them. Let's jump ahead to 2027. By 2020s, everyone realized that summers were longer and hotter than ever before in New York City. Global warming was expected to increase the rate at which sea level rose from about one foot per century to between 1.6 and 2.5 feet per century. The runways in, uh, here's what they're, in 2039, the runways at Kennedy, LaGuardia, and Newark airports were raised in anticipation of higher water levels. And the coastal areas were rezoned for parks and recreational uses, not high density residential development. It was funny, she's, um, one, of the, one person asked Heidi one day, she said, should I sell my beachfront property? Interesting. How, why would you, I mean, it's too bad you got to ask that question. Would I have to sell my beachfront property? Probably a better chance to do it now than later on. Okay? 
So her last thought on New York City in 2050, since they, they, hopefully they did their work, not everyone loves New York, but those who do love it, love it intensely. And though some combination of luck and high-tech ingenuity, those who love the city ultimately saved it. In 2050, when Hurricane Xavier, a Category 4 monster, sprang up from the bathtub that the Atlantic Ocean had fully, finally arrived, people sat back and watched it like the World Series. We knew we had a home team advantage, just like the Yankees. Hmm. If they do their work. Okay, so that's that. Uh, also, uh, behind, after you finish reading the book, there's an epilogue in here, and there's some interesting graphs and statistics about what could happen in some major U.S. cities. Um, if you want to get this book, I, I know they have it at uh, the library, but I would guess it's worth buying as well because it's going to be fun 10, 15, 20 years to go back and look at this book and see how accurate it was. Bottom line is we've got to do everything we can to help uh, reduce you know, greenhouse emissions and help curb the release of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And if we can at least do our part to help out, we'll, we'll have to see what happens. There's no guarantees, but that's a possible scenario, and it's called the weather of the future. Well, I do appreciate the effort uh, for you to be here today, and I appreciate you letting me uh, give you an idea of what this book holds, but it is really fascinating. I'd encourage you to get it, and kind of gets me to want to do what I can do to save our planet. So thank you all. Have a great day. I'm Emily Ellis, Reference Librarian at Knox County Public Library. To hear podcasts of other programs, visit www.knoxlib.org, that's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G, and follow the link to the Brown Bag Green Book webpage.